Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, your creepy host, your creepy ghost host, mm-hmm. Abraham. Spooky. And I'll be your lovable protagonist that doesn't make it to the end, Shane. <laughs> Fair enough. And I am so excited. Shane, it's October. It's October. We, we made, made it. it. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is our second annual series of Scary Spooky podcast episodes so we're super stoked about it we when we were talking about this we're like we we were like we could do this we could do this we could do this and so great so we're really stoked about this series yeah for some reason it took us two years to figure out that we should do this and then once it clicked into place it was like yeah why haven't we been doing this all along right and now here it is it's our annual tradition so yeah well and you know i mean given that it's an election year and there's already scary stuff people might have assumed that like our series on political interviews might have been the scary stuff right but this is this is the real scary stuff that we're going to talk about yeah so this whole series of episodes will just be a recap of what 2020 has been so far because (laughs) horror got nothing on 2020 Just kidding. That's it. We've got an episode on murder hornets. We've got an episode on fire tornadoes. We've got an episode on you name it. We got it. This this year yeah. has been it's one long episode. So I saw something the other day that said, um, I'm really scared to see the season finale of 2020. <laughs> I know, right? What will they do next? <laughs> it's like American Horror Story gone wrong. Who will Satan pick as his bride to be? Yeah. <laughs> now I just think of that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. The end of days. Oh, okay. Yeah. I immediately started running through them and I was like, Predator, uh, The Last Stand. <laughs> Kindergarten Cop. Terminator. Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about Maggie. I know. Deep cuts, man. Anyway, I would like to begin with Hello Darkness, my old friend. That's how in tune that I sing, by the way. <laughs> so for today's episode... My dear listener, if you can, we encourage you to find a mysterious area of your basement or that corner of your attic or that lonely office desk where you studied for your BCBA exam or other licensure or credentialing exam. (laughs) You know, the one with the jagged edges of wood and dirty glass where no ray of sunlight has ever penetrated. The foulest stench is in the air. The funk of 40,000 years and grisly ghouls from every tomb. Ah! Yeah, so let's get you out of those caverns of your mind back into what we hope is a well-lit room or a breezy fall morning in a very familiar area where you are very, very safe and sound and basic, drinking all the pumpkin spice things that you could possibly get your hands on. Yes. Because it is October, and we are so excited about this. There is where we'll be talking about today about your nyctophobia. And for those of you who do not run into medical circles or or spend any time talking about phobias or anything like that, we are talking about the all too familiar and often talked about fear of the dark. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Well timed. At least on my end, it was in sync. So, all right. (laughs) So let us delve into the depths, the deep, dark depths of this topic. And begin with, what is this thing? So, Fear of the Dark follows a deep evolutionary background, but, as you imagine, may also be perpetuated by the learned behaviors and social contexts to which we are exposed, which include any number of specific stimulus objects or cues. 
Yeah, so a fear of the dark might manifest in, in different levels of severity. So you might have some folks that are really, really averse to it and other folks that just kind of like are nervous about it. And we're going to talk about those different spectrums of what that might look like and some indicators of what type of fear you might have related to it. Now, the high severity is called nyctophobia, which involves more substantial avoidance and reaction to those dark spaces. So I think specifically, if you've ever read House of Leaves. I have not. House of Leaves made me afraid of the dark. I had a healthy dose wow. of fear related to, you know, just like dark hallways and stuff like that. But then I read House of Leaves, which is the scariest book I've ever read. It made me so afraid of the dark that like I have to like shine my light on stuff because it, it is horrifying. So is this a children's book? No, it's a book by Mark Z. Danielewski. And it reads like a textbook. So it's reads it reads like a found wow. text about this like house. It has these like suddenly appearing hallways and just all like this like supernatural, unexplainable stuff. It's it's wild. So huh. yeah, it's a really great read. So before we get into recommendations later, I recommend getting House of Leaves for October and just rifling yeah. through it. It is worth it. So when we get to a point when what can be described or considered a normal reaction becomes a little bit more, it rises to the occasion of paranoia, excessive avoidance, those symptoms that are really pervasive, we can start looking at the classification of nyctophobia, moving from like a healthy, normal reaction to darkness to this more severe clinical issue that goes along with the fear of darkness. So House of Leaves made you afraid of the dark. Poltergeist made me afraid of closets. Yeah, that's the same thing. Poltergeist is yeah. terrifying. Yeah, great movie. All right, so <laughs> let's talk about fears in general. We'll do a brief overview because I think it's worth doing a deep dive on specific phobias at some point and really getting into the diagnostic criteria and how that sort of arose and that sort of thing. So these fears in general, it may be different than on sort of a surface level anxiety or fear about things. Fears in terms of fear of the object or the outcome of the object. So for example, are you scared of falling or are you scared of hitting something? So like, are you scared of the falling or are you scared of like the landing, what it feels like to land? Are you scared of guns or instead is your fear of being shot? Are you scared of drugs or are you scared of the effect that the drugs might have on you? Fire or getting burned or are you scared of flying or are you scared of actually crashing? And so it's like there's the, the difference between the object or action and the outcome of that object or action. And I think clearly most of the times it's going to be the outcome. You know, the reality of this is that none of the things, the objects or the actions are likely to harm you. If there's no actual outcome of that interaction. So in fact, guns, drugs, and fire may serve a very functional and safe purpose under certain circumstances, particularly airsoft guns when you're shooting at your friends. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so also like the dark. So you have like flashlight tag. You want to be in the dark when you're watching movies. You probably want to be in the dark when you're sleeping. But our history of interacting with these things combined with what we learn from stories and entertainment might then impact our impression of those things so that we would then become afraid of the object or the action itself. Right. And so, you know, when we talk about this, it could be heightened too. you know, these fears and these, these reactions that might be heightened due to recent threats, recent exposures, horror content, witnessing unpleasant things. It could be any number of things that contribute to that. So what we want to try to explore a little bit within this question of why are we afraid of the dark is if we're afraid of the dark, because it may be a question of whether or not it's the dark or the thing that lingers in it, right? Going back to that primary question, what are you actually afraid of when it comes to the dark? 
I think Darwin has an answer, or at least evolution does. Yeah, someone somewhere does. You know, there's a genetic reason and an evolutionary reason why this might happen. So when we talk about being afraid of the dark, let's talk about the evolutionary foundation of it. Now, humans are not nocturnal by nature, so we already have a detachment to life in the dark. We don't thrive in the dark. Our eyesight isn't great for the dark. And if you look at our other senses, really the only one that's really pretty impressive is maybe our sense of taste <laughs> because because our eyesight our our hearing and our smell are not remarkable comparable to any sort of other organism in the world with respect to navigating in, in the dark specifically yeah yeah so what happens is we begin to avoid the dark right and that avoidance of darkness it stems from evolutionary avoidance of predators during the night because at night we are less safe because we cannot protect ourselves because we need we cannot sense those things that are lurking yeah, at least. So this is a theory, I think, of, of why we're afraid of the dark. And uh, there might be other reasons that there are rooted in evolutionary history in terms of or other experiences. So we're just speaking at this point about one of those theories. And so obviously most predators back then and contemporarily hunt at night when we're at our most vulnerable, because that's one of the times that we are most likely to be sleeping. And especially in the absences of fire or moonlight to help us see then we have, as you mentioned, terrible eyesight. So we can't see those threats coming or hear them or sense them in any meaningful way. Right. And so keeping in mind, as we're framing this from the evolutionary standpoint, there was a period in time where human beings were not considered top of the food chain. And to be honest, if you put a human being in a situation with any sort of top predator, we're still not at the top of the food chain. The only reason we are is because of tools and avoidance behavior, really. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we stay out of the ocean so we don't get eaten by sharks. But the minute that we are in that, in that environment, we're done. Right. So that's my understanding anyway. Yeah, that's I mean, that's maybe my healthy fear of the ocean. Now, the ocean at night, totally different thing. <laughs> Not oh. to scare you even more. Sharks uh, at night. Horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> no the, very, the very thought of that might be enough to kill me. <laughs> I don't actually need the sharks. I'll just think about the sharks. I'll be like, ah, yeah, yeah. Sharks. At night, in the, no thanks, I can't, I can't do it. So this nightly fear of worrying about predators and kind of the avoidance of the dark, it became instinctual and may linger today as a result. We might see that a little bit within our, our genetic evolution as a result of having been exposed to that for generation to generation to generation. And so, and this kind of helps keep the fight or flight concept alive, where the idea is like when we're presented with this thing, are we going to engage? Are we going to run? Or are we going to freeze in that moment, right? So it's kind of interesting to see this come up from that standpoint, given that we have electricity and lights now. Yeah, obviously there is definitely a fear of the dark still, even though we have light bulbs, phone screens, and other things to keep the night well lit. But I actually think that you might also look at that and think that that sort of exacerbates the problem because it's easier than ever to escape the darkness. And so you're not ever forced necessarily to confront it and experience a lack of threats, particularly in places where there are very unlikely to be any threats from predators or otherwise. Right. Or aliens, aliens or predators, you know, or aliens <laughs> versus predators. Which you don't want to be in that tangle. No. Stay out of pyramids in Antarctica. <laughs> also, stay out of that movie theater because that movie wasn't worth it. <laughs> Agreed. You know, when we look at this, in the absence of lions and tigers, we tend to fill that void, right? So what ends up happening is darkness signals, and this is a perspective again, but darkness signals that there's something out there that's unsafe. So we know in a, a major city there's not going to be lions or tigers, but there might be some monster that's there that we've kind of created or some kind of predator that we've created that is uniquely preying on us as human beings in a vulnerable time. Because again, when we're in the dark, we are vulnerable because our eyesight sucks in the dark. Cloverfield. Yeah. 
And then content like news media provides these sensationalist reports about assaults and attacks. Or if you've watched too much Law & Order SVU recently, this could have an impact on what we believe is lingering behind the trees in Central Park at 3 a.m. And that might be a legitimate fear. <laughs> I think pro tip, don't go into the middle of Central Park at 3 a.m. Just stay out of there. Yeah, not worth it. I don't, what are yeah. you doing there anyway? Yeah, find a diner or something. Yeah, or, quit being sneaky. You know, if it's during a global pandemic, just stay at home. Yeah, that's it. Just stay at home and leave a light on and you'll be fine. All right, so nyctophobia, symptoms of this. As you might imagine, avoidance of dark. So anyway, they're these sort of normal symptoms, if you will. Low risk, very common, particularly in children. And this looks like becoming nervous whenever the environment is darkened, reluctance to go outside at nighttime, and needing to sleep with lights on in the room, including nightlights or TV or phone or what have you. That's pretty standard stuff. You'll see that happen commonly among folks who are having a general nervousness about the dark. And this is not actually at the level of nyctophobia yet. This is like a general sort of reservation, hesitation, maybe leading up to a more full-blown phobia. Right. So as it begins to graduate towards nyctophobia, though, you might see some more severe symptoms like physiological responses to darkness, like increased heart rate, visible shaking, sweating, nausea, dizziness, cold flashes. You might attempt to run away from dark rooms. For those folks, there's probably some listeners out there that probably when they go to bed, they probably turn their light off and run to their bed really quick. <laughs> right. I mean, is that not normal? Uh we have to talk. <laughs> you know, defensiveness when encouraged to spend time in the dark. I couldn't imagine being in that conversation with somebody's like, come on, just just hang out in this dark room. Like and be and then being like that being a normal conversation that somebody would not be defensive to. I would be like, what are you asking me to do? But then going further and compulsively staying indoors at night, detachment from the self or feelings of unreal when darkness is present or feeling powerless over the fear. So when you start getting exposed to this and you start feeling fearful in relation to that and that you can't control it. That's when those symptoms become a little bit more severe. When you insist on certain aspects of romance happening in broad daylight also. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Like no other context. That's right. <laughs> and it's important to consider the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual's classification of phobias, which includes unreasonable excessive fear, immediate anxiety responses, recognition that the fear is irrational and obviously not required, avoidance or extreme distress, limiting various aspects of your life, such as preventing you from being able to go to school, work, or have a personal life, persists for at least six months and is not the cause of some other disorder that you might have, which is pretty boilerplate. That last one's thrown in pretty much every other diagnosis. Is like is not better explained by another diagnosis. You'll usually see those two criterion where it's like, there is a time criterion is there an effect on the person's life and is it not caused by another disorder? Like those three are present in almost every diagnosis. Now, when you compare it to other phobias, uh, according to healthline.com plus other, <laughs> you know, given several circumstances, there are acceptable and unacceptable ways to feel avoidance or anxiety. And so it's important to know kind of what's a normal fear reaction versus what might be leading to a phobia reaction in the presence of these things. So it's okay to be nervous in a social interaction, but to hole up in your apartment forever, avoiding anyone's face is super impractical. And while that's probably normal in a pandemic, you know, which would be like an introvert's utopia in a normal circumstance when everything is at baseline, that is not a socially common engagement of behavior. So what we want to do in this moment is kind of highlight a situation and present whether it's not maybe like a, a maybe it's a normal fear reaction 
it might indicate a phobia or maybe you just kind of have an interesting preference for unique activities. Okay. All right. So the first situation, anxiety during turbulence in a thunderstorm while flying. I think this is a normal fear reaction. Yeah. I think I would have that same fear reaction too. Skipping your sister's wedding because you'd have to fly there. May have a phobia. Okay. Or bringing your pet snake, mofo pet snake, on this mofo plane. You're just weird. That's weird. <laughs> That's odd. I mean, why do you call a mofo snake? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Feeling nervous or queasy about getting a flu shot. Uh, I always look forward to flu shots, at least. In, I, I look forward to being inoculated. I don't look forward to the <laughs> shot itself. I don't have any love of needles in particular, but I'm going to say that's a normal fear reaction. I stopped for a second because I thought you were going to say, I always look forward to flu season. <laughs> like, I thought that that's where that was going to go, and I don't know why. That means that I'm weird. I look forward to flu season so that I can get a flu shot. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, man. Avoiding necessary checkups and medical procedures for fear of needles. May indicate a phobia. All right. Playing the scene from Saw 2 with the pit of needles over and over and over again on repeat. <laughs> Very strange. Just yeah. weird. Not, not a phobia. Not normal. <laughs> yeah. Also, that's a horrifying scene, by the way. Yes, it is. It's very hard to watch. One of my least favorite in the entire franchise, and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. All right. Feeling uneasy with the lights off at night. I suppose that's a normal fear reaction. Yeah. Missing sleep or feeling extremely distressed at bedtime in darkness. May indicate a phobia. Or your dog's cage has a lamp on it 24-7 because the boogeyman is going to come rip his eyes out if you leave him alone in the dark. Wow, that is morbid. Uh, that's just weird. <laughs> yeah, That's also very specific. So, yeah. Alan, who took our notes, we're going to check on you. Yeah, good on Alan for coming up with this table. And some of these have me worried. <laughs> this is our PSA where just check on your friends. Right. That's <laughs> pretty close to my recommendation at the end here. Anyway, let's get into the, the psychological perspective of this. So why do we have this phobia in general, particularly when we look at this in the combination of what might be considered evolutionary history, as well as our learned patterns and ways of being. And I think the obvious one that jumps out is that there is an element of this for many people that is the fear of the unknown. Just as we sort of described as the sort before is the fear of darkness or the, the things that might be lingering in darkness or what it might mean. And the same thing that exists in many horror movies, particularly when they're well done, a lot of times what they'll capitalize more on is not the monster or the the villain or the any specific like tangible thing, but is keeping the audience kind of guessing because what you don't know is maybe scarier than what you can see. And I think when this is well done, then you can see that. So for example, in the movie signs, Blair witch project, it comes at night, jaws, paranormal activity, invisible man. Yeah. Movies that have a lot of these elements of like you, there's a lot that you don't know. Well, and I think that's what makes Midsummer so scary is because it all happens in daylight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I agree. I think that that movie was very unsettling and it relied on creating an element of unknown without it relying on that unknown being shrouded by darkness. Yeah. Mm, no, thanks. You know, that was even more disturbing because we're used to being able to know things when they're right out in front of us. Right. So if you're friends with Ari Aster, check on them, the director of the movie, because they need some help. All right. <laughs> But part of this, when we talk about the fear of the unknown, it uses your imagination to stir up some of the most horrific versions of whatever you believe is coming. So, like, you know, when you start getting, like, lost in your imagination about this thing, it's almost always exaggerated. And so then you run into this issue of what's in the dark is definitely the worst possible thing that could be in the dark. You're never like, oh, it's probably just a 
just a puppy running around. Like nobody's doing that. Like it's not really. I don't. If anybody is concerned about puppies in the dark, that's a different thing. Puppy phobia. Could you imagine being afraid of the most adorable thing on the planet? Nope. Afraid <laughs> how much I love it. <laughs> afraid I would squeeze it so much. <laughs> now, according to ScienceAlert.com and general consumers of movies, <laughs> it says that horror movies, the good ones, never directly show you the monster because your imagination makes something way scarier. It's a direct quote, by the way. And I mean, that's just exactly what we've been saying is this idea that what is frightening about it is that there is the potential for danger and you have no idea what it is. And that's why if you turn on the light, there's nothing there. Like the movie Lights Out, I think, really capitalized on this whole idea that because you only see it when it's dark and as soon as the lights are on, it disappears. I think that was the premise of this movie. And as soon as they're out again, then all of a sudden the, the threat is there again. And it's clear that it like it's moving in the darkness, but you can only see it a little bit in the darkness, but not at all in the light. And yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a pretty well understood phenomenon is the create the experience. Don't just show it. To, and I you look at movies where they do show the monsters a lot and right away and they aren't those movies are usually terrible when Jason starts to become like the main central figure of the Friday the 13th movies and is like in almost every scene it's all of a sudden it's not really that scary and it's become the sort of hokey silly nonsense right but then when you watch movies like Rear View which is an old Alfred Hitchcock movie like the whole thing is all about the unknown it's a guy sitting in his apartment paranoid as all get out and it just gets worse and worse and worse as it goes and it's all because you don't know what's happening you only know from his perspective and it just shows this it's this really great example of how you know things go wrong really quickly when you get in your own head and so just going back to this idea of when you're in darkness and you just you just can't see the problem is we can't access what's around us via the senses that we in a way that we normally would as i said there that creates the potential for danger or threat and then in things that would normally be innocuous shift in the way that they would cue your behavior as being ordinary and mundane, all of a sudden they become threatening. So by day, a creaking door is just like the wind or a familiar face arriving, you know, to your place of dwelling. <laughs> and then <laughs> by night, it's definitely Freddy Krueger or somebody there to like attack you. And that context shifts just based on how easily we can access that environment via our normal senses. Right. And of course, there are some facts that play into this, right? Like, so most crimes are committed at night or more crimes are committed at night. So as a result of that, that lends itself to adding more context or cues to this thing that is darkness. And now all of a sudden you have this like environment, which is like genetically and evolutionary, like from the evolutionary standpoint, we're worried about predators from a psychology standpoint. And just from our own learning experience, we hear the crimes happen at night. So now we have all these like things that contribute to why the dark is this big, scary, nebulous thing. Yeah. So this comes right back to the fact that we understand that were we to be predators, we would probably do so in a way that allows us to be obscured from our prey. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to do that in the cover of darkness. And so understanding that were we to approach it that way that means that if something else wanted to use us as prey it's probably also going to use the cover of darkness as another way of thinking about this and so we we understand the relation between what makes the most sense given the situation and in broad daylight it's a lot harder to catch something and do so unaware where they're not going to put up a fight or you're going to be stopped by some other external force you know this is also why like if a crime could be committed during the daylight, it probably happened in a private secluded area where there are no other people, because again, that protects the attacker 
from being stopped or from being identified or why they would wear a mask, even if they were operating, you know, in the daylight. And so at nighttime, it's the exact same thing is just being able to shroud yourself and protect yourself from your prey. And so we inherently understand, not inherently, I guess, but using the basic logic and perspective of what it means to be in that situation, we can interpret that we then become potentially the victims of a threat because all of a sudden we're in a situation where that is much more easily accomplished. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, there are a lot of factors that contribute to why this is such a terrifying thing. That segues nicely, I think, in discussing sort of how we learn we learn these things and the specific cues and how they come about. And as we already said, the dark lacks important visual cues that signal any type of, I guess you think of it as reinforcement, but any type of access or rewards to your normal environment. And that means that you've set the stage for the potential for fear and abstractions to fill in that space. Because if we're in a room that we're familiar with and we can see everything that's in that room, then everything there, we under, we have a, a history of understanding how where it is and what it does and what we need and how to get there and et cetera. But when it's dark, even in a room that we're familiar with, if you can't remember the exact layout or where certain things are, then all of a sudden those things pose a threat. So there, there's kind of a natural fear of walking through a room of, is there something on the floor that I'm going to trip on? Because if I trip and land on something and hit my head, like I could be in real serious danger. And like that's a that's a part of fear that could exist. And it's that lack of those cues that that mean that we can no longer behave as effectively in that circumstance in a way to the extent that we might physically be in danger. So to that point, my biggest fear of the dark is that I'm going to stub my toe. Yeah. Walking in a room, even that I'm familiar in. I'm like, I know I know my bed frame is right there. And if I stub my toe, I'm going to scream so much. So I don't want to do that. Or step on a Lego in your house. I've had to apologize to my parents so many times because I've stepped on so many Legos. And my, I remember my dad just being so mad when I was younger. I'm like, I have formally apologized to him for all the Legos he stepped on over the years. <laughs> he is the worst. Like, it's legitimate. Like, I, it's just, no thanks. Legos hurt. Yeah, Legos hurt so much. <laughs> oh. So there are some other environmental factors that contribute to how we learn to be afraid of the dark. And so one of those might be contact with an anxious caregiver, right? So children might learn through their experiences with parents that their caregivers or somebody who is responsible for their care is maybe overly nervous about the dark. Maybe that they always leave lights on in the house. Maybe they always make sure there's a nightlight or a hall light or something in the house. So just those kind of like those environmental cues that are set up by an anxious caregiver might actually influence some of the ways that the dark is perceived in a home. Yeah. These kids are like sponges, man. They see you act afraid of the dark and then they start acting afraid of the dark they you know they're they're these little sponges that are trying to go go about figuring out how to live in this crazy world of ours and so they largely just follow what their parents do for quite a while and what that might mean initially is that if you're afraid of the dark your kid will also demonstrate fear of the dark if you tell them to be afraid of the dark they'll be afraid of the dark and maybe you think it's funny at first but like you're creating sleepless nights for yourself so yeah i'd encourage you to not go that route it's not worth it and then another circumstance similar to this is if you might be overly protective and sort of warn them all the time of the dangers that might be out in the world and the dangers of the dark. And that might sort of force kids to develop this generalized anxiety if they're too dependent on the caregiver to protect them. And then they subsequently feel helpless and they don't know what to do in those situations. And they've been told their whole life how dangerous everything is. Right. So Jonathan Haidt, spelled H-A-I-D-T, Haidt, Haidt. Hate it. I hate it. I hate it. 
So Jonathan works with this letgrow.org and his book, The Coddling of the American Mind regarding overparenting. So they, they focus on overparenting, coddling of children in the term or the phrase helicopter parenting has kind of come out of this. Now, that being said, that can be an oversweeping generalization and there's some stuff around that. But understanding that kids are these sponges and they do pick up on cues and they do pick up on these habits from families, there are some things that they note that are pretty important. So previously, kids aged five to eight were allowed to go outside and play unsupervised, right? That used to, used to see that all the time. Learn boundaries of the world that they lived in, learn to desensitize themselves to many situations, but that kind of lifestyle has shifted over the last generation, right? So like, I don't know about how you were, Abraham, when you were growing up, but I was playing outside all the time when I wasn't reading. So I was allowed to go outside. I was I was in when the streetlights were on and all that, but it's very different with kids these days, like where you, it's just not the same kind of cultural expectation for playing outside. I was a latchkey kid. Oh, okay. Just kidding. No, <laughs> no but no, you're right. I like, I did go out quite a bit and play and, and, you know, we used to, ride several blocks to go to parks or go to the library or go to the the pool you know and and so there was quite a bit of unsupervised time as well as obviously a lot of rules and and restrictions but i think there was sort of the the threat of enforcement was more controlling than the actual enforcement itself and so there's a lot of just sort of exploring and going around I mean, yeah as you were saying that it, it was ages five to eight and recently that age gap uh, the age range of of when kids go out to explore has shifted all the way up to 12, so more than doubled for the lower end of the range. Yeah. That's allowing kids to be at home or given any real independence with their time. And so that means that the first time that they have to encounter external situations of that kind is when they're almost teenagers versus kids who would have been very well seasoned, spent half their life in those kind of situations in the previous situation. And again, I just want to reiterate as we move through this, we're not actually endorsing all of all of this work here, but we're just describing what hated Jonathan has said about about <laughs> these things as a way of thinking about it and knowing that I think in some ways he's probably overgeneralizing these these statements and overstating the claims, but there might be something useful to learn here. And just some additional factors that might contribute to this. You see like uh, media coverage become a little bit more sensationalized, especially with abductions and violence in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I would even say like in the 70s when you had the, the rise of serial killers and how many there were going on at that time, all of that contributes to maybe we shouldn't go outside. Maybe the dark is a little bit scary. Yeah. Then 9-11 comes along, social media, like all the stuff that gets shared, like it becomes like this kind of like fear mongering thing and produces an environment where everybody's afraid of everything. Yeah. We had like McCarthyism and Jim Crow laws and then Nixon and the rise of the serial killer. Oh, and the satanic panic of the eighties. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. They've been driving people inward and away from one another. And it's understandable that people would begin to take more and more precautions to avoid these things happening. And, and probably in a lot of ways, it's been a good thing. And there are the costs. There's a cost associated with that. And it's worth acknowledging what that cost is and how, how potentially to try and mitigate that cost. And the cost that we're talking about here is the cost of being able to experience the world and develop a healthy relationship with the kind of environmental circumstances one might encounter growing up. And essentially, if these irrational fears associated with dark places, so the man in the big white van is going to kidnap and dismember you. Man, that got dark <laughs> fast. Yeah. Or the woman you... You run to for help is actually in cahoots with the van man and she's going to eat whatever's left of you. Wow. Alan, buddy. <laughs>
Alan, are you okay? <laughs> so if these irrational fears are not dispelled early on, uh, they could compound over time and become increasingly resistant to learning and change. And also to stressful events like trauma, uh, they had, such as car accidents, assault, kidnapping, abuse, all of those things can contribute to relevant factors or relevant experiences that are paired with or lined up with those relevant cues, right? So like if I'm assaulted in the dark, I'm likely to avoid dark places again. Like if I'm assaulted in an alley, I'm likely to avoid that alley because it presents a unique danger. We've sort of mentioned already, but you can't rule out that there might be some genetic factors. We haven't isolated exactly what those things might be, but some adults and children are potentially simply more susceptible to certain fears or phobias or, or being reactive to things of that nature. Obviously, we've mentioned a billion times and we'll continue to say that anything that we do is a combination of what we've learned and our genetic predisposition. So it's the interaction of our biology with our environment. And those two things work together. So there's going to be something important to genetic here. And there's definitely something important we've already spoken to about what we learn and what we're exposed to. Yeah. So given that we know all that about this and, and just kind of understanding how these fears might show up, it's definitely worth talking about whether you can get over them, right? Because just because you have a fear or a phobia doesn't mean that you have to live in fear for the rest of your life. So there are some treatment options that are out there. Now, the first thing we'll start with is the idea that the fear of the dark and what we've been talking about all day is a common fear, particularly in children. So things like a nightlight that can be faded out, you can slowly dim the light, you can use a less bright bulb. Those are ways that you can kind of learn to do that over time that will make it a little bit easier to acclimate to dark rooms and dark spaces. For more severe cases, one of the ones that probably a lot of people have heard is called exposure therapy. And it's kind of exactly what it sounds like, which is that if you have this nyctophobia, you're afraid of the dark then a way of treating this is to expose that person to the dark in small, incremental, non-threatening doses. So as you had said, sort of similar to the nightlight thing, slowly dimming the lights, introducing very safe spaces with low light conditions, various, I guess, opportunities that look like that, where you have darkness and a lack of threat in that darkness, and you slowly allow the person to experience more of that with more uncertainty. And as long as they're maintaining a relatively stable level of comfort and like, it's okay to be a little bit afraid of the dark. It's when it becomes debilitating that you probably want to intervene. And what this can do then is break that chain of darkness, evoking that fear, that sense of anxiety and that desire to escape or find light. And it can work as quickly for some people as a single session working on this. And for some people, it'll take a little bit longer, but the exposure therapy is, is pretty tried and true well evidence-based method for a lot of people this is effective it probably won't work for every single person but it's worth giving a shot at least to begin trying because it can be fast and easy but if it doesn't work for you then you might have to go another route but that's at least a way that has worked for a lot of people another way that people have worked through these types of things would be through cbt or cognitive behavioral therapy and essentially what happens is the therapist guides patients through behavioral routines performed frequently that are going to end up reducing those symptoms so it's like practice repetition practice repetition also working on like thoughts and perceptions around why somebody might be afraid of the dark so going back to that original question are you afraid of the dark or what's in it Part of CBT would help identify that and navigate how to be less afraid of those things. So what they might do is they might work on replacing feelings of anxiety with maybe more fact-based things. Like they might ground, uh, you know, the dark just means that there's less light. 
your front door is locked, your windows are closed, like there's nothing in the dark right then and there that's going to be unsafe for you, right? So they might work on those things and kind of grounding techniques, but it also creates more reasonable benign associations with darkness. So what ends up happening is as you work through those emotions and you work through those skills and you work through all that, you start kind of creating these new relationships with what darkness means and start kind of undoing all that stuff, realizing that monsters aren't real, right? And then start kind of like undoing that, unraveling that thought and then replacing that with a more realistic and more fact-based grounded type of thought. Some monsters are real, but most of them live in the ocean. So <laughs> yes, the night sharks, pretty much all sharks in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so going back to as we described, when one is experiencing fear of the dark, I mean, really any any phobia, but when you're experiencing fear of the dark, what, one thing is you're likely to observe when someone is afraid of something is the physiological effects of this, which is elevated heart rate, maybe sweating. You have that uh, shallow breathing and sort of the tension that you're on edge. So one potential therapeutic strategy that works for some people is relaxation techniques. You might do some deep breathing, maybe even do some exercise to help expel a little bit of that energy and maybe even some meditation and that sort of thing, whatever, you know, helps people relax. That's not necessarily related to just ingesting a lot of psychoactive substances <laughs> and doing this might help manage stress and the physical symptoms that are related to that phobia by directly countering the symptoms itself. Now, of course, that is treating the symptoms. That's not treating the sort of, as people like to say, the underlying cause, but it can, it can help. So it's like, this is one of those things that can supplement some of those other treatments and can help just bring a feeling of security to that situation, which can you know ultimately reprogram those cues a little bit to an extent, but it's probably best to use in combination with some other things. And finally, one of the things that you could use for treatment would be, in specifically in more severe cases, there's a possibility of using some kind of medication, maybe an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety med that might be effective. There are some, I mean, there's plenty of evidence out there for anxiolytics that help support folks that have really severe symptoms of anxiety, but that's usually in combination of like one-to-one -one talk therapy, some kind of counseling, maybe a combination of meds, behavioral practice. There's a lot of stuff that goes into that. It's not simply that you get the medication to get rid of your fear of darkness. It's really a matter of like, here are some severe symptoms so that we can get through your day. How are we going to work through it so that you don't need this long term? Right. All right. Well, I think that more or less wraps it up. We're afraid of the dark for those reasons. Do you have anything else on on that? No, I think we can hit take home points now. Perfect. So after further review and millions of dollars of grant money spent on drinking white claws in the dark for science, there is indeed no <laughs> monster, right? There are no monsters. The end. You're welcome. Stop being afraid of monsters. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> So fear of the dark is a natural element of development that occurs in a lot of children, not everybody, but for a lot of people. And this is, again, as we mentioned, likely brought on by a combination of some of those potentially lingering evolutionary sort of traits that in include avoidance of dark environments. And then a lot of those other learned factors that we mentioned, such as scary media content, parenting styles, and then whatever your learning history might be with those dark environments, be it you encountered something that was actually traumatic that happens to you in those dark environments, and that led to an association of darkness with danger and threat, or you didn't have any contact with dark environments, and therefore it became the sort of mega unknown, because at no point were you in a situation where you got to experience whether or not there was safety or threat, 
and it, you could hype that up even to yourself. So I think that's a sort of nice summary of what we discussed on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, in this fear that we were talking about, this idea of being afraid of the dark, it usually subsides by the time you become an adult. So most people will have a healthy fear of the dark when they're younger, and they usually kind of grow out of it with more learning experience and more exposure to it. But some individuals experience exacerbated symptoms that can conflict with their quality of life, and they can really get in the way. And that includes avoidance of social and work environments, loss of sleep, damaged relationships. There's all kinds of things that can come out of these more severe symptoms of nyctophobia. And for those folks, they might require a little bit extra help to get through it. And finally, a remaining take-home point to remember is that formal treatment for the symptoms and for causes of nyctophobia include things like exposure therapy, CBT, medication, relaxation, and other forms of talk therapy might be helpful. So if you feel like you are struggling with this, definitely seek help from a medical professional and watch lots of horror movies. Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. That, that might not help. <laughs> that might not help at all. <laughs> They'll specifically try and foster if you're darkness. <laughs> yeah. If you want to develop a fear of darkness, just watch a lot of really dark, scary movies in the dark. Yep. All right. I'm sure that's what we all need right now. Yeah. This, this horror movie of 2020 has got to stop. Are we ready for some recommendations? Let's do it. Perfect. Recommendations. I'm going to make a recommendation. This is one that I've actually heard from a celebrity, although I forgot who it was now, that this person sort of had a habit of telling everybody that he, I think it was a he, interacted with whenever he would leave that interaction. So like they were, they were spending time together, they were hanging out, and when they would depart, he would say, I love you to them. And although that seems a little quirky and weird... His rationale was you never know when you spoke to someone if that was going to be the last time that you ever spoke to that person for most people. Like for some people, you kind of do know that. But for most people, you oftentimes don't know if the last interaction you had was the last time that you ever spoke to that person. And so leaving them with I love you is a way of at least ensuring that you the last thing you said was that, that you conveyed that sentiment. Now, you don't necessarily have to do that to people you don't love, but I think honestly, other people you care about in your life, that's a sentiment. And having recently experienced loss myself, we did an episode on grief earlier this year. For a lot of people, this is this has been a <laughs> we're in a time <laughs> where there's a lot of unknown and surprising loss that can happen. I think even if you don't necessarily turn this into a big habit, saying it slightly more often is maybe a way of feeling good. So that's my recommendation: is tell people that you love them when you leave interactions with them, as long as that's not going to be like inappropriate to do. I think that makes sense. I feel like that either came from Paul Rudd or Keanu Reeves. Right, probably. They just seem like the most wholesome folks on the planet. So I, I can imagine it comes from one of them. So my recommendation is nowhere nearly as sentimental or meaningful. And so I apologize for that ahead of time. But mine is a new game that's out. It requires no money. You don't even have to sign up for a profile, which is the best part. You can just play the game. You can play it online with folks, and it's called Among Us. As Abraham had mentioned before we started talking, it sounds very similar to the game Werewolf, where the goal is that you have a group of people, and you're trying to figure out who the werewolf is in that group of people. Well, Among Us is the same thing, except you're actually playing the game and you are on like a spaceship or like a launch pad or something like that. And you're these little space creatures. They look like they're wearing like colored hazmat suits and you run around, you do tasks and there is a murderer or an imposter among the group. And so your goal to win the game 
to win every segment, which only takes like five minutes per segment. It's like such a quick little thing. It's nice. In order to win, you have to eject the imposter who is the murderer who's going around killing your friends on there. When you're the imposter, your goal is to sabotage the spaceship and get rid of everybody that's on the spaceship but you. So it's a lot of fun. It requires not a lot from you except for just being sneaky and cunning and thinking and problem solving. But otherwise, it's just good old fun. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we will leave it there then. Thank you so much for recording with me today, Shane. Anytime. Alan, thank you for your notes. And buddy, let's talk. Make sure you're okay. (laughs) We want to make sure you got what you need. Yeah. The fear of the dark went to some dark places. Yeah, it really did. Oh, (laughs) it's a great pun. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening. We appreciate your time and being here with us. I'm looking forward to a month full of spooky themed episodes to talk about. I don't know if we should spoil it now. Let's not. Let's save it for the time being. You get to see what's coming out when when they're released in the feed. But for the the four weeks we have in the four Wednesdays we have in October, we'll be releasing these spooky themed episodes, and then we'll we'll be back to our regular scheduled programming, if you will. Yeah. In the meantime, you can reach out to us on all of, all of our social media accounts, and you can email us at info at www.wwdpodcast.com. If you like us, then feel free to give us a rating and review wherever you listen to our podcast. And if you'd like to, you may join us on Patreon, get access to our Discord server, bonus episodes, videos, that sort of thing, and potentially even the opportunity to record with us at some point. Yeah. Maybe if you sign up for that level. That is all that I have. You want to have any other closing thoughts, Shane? Nope, that's it. Thank you all for listening and try to get a good nightlight. Hey, strangers out there, I love you. Shane, I love you. Hey, Abraham, I love you. <laughs> and uh, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.